This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, teaching minister Tim Peace will be teaching the message. Well, good morning, everyone. How you doing? Awesome. My name is Tim Peace, and I'm the teaching minister here at Mount Carmel. And uh, I get to kickstart a new message series that's going to take us all the way through November. Uh, we're calling it Wise Up, Words to Live By. And we're going to be taking a, a deep dive and a slow burn through uh, the letter of James in our New Testament. And so uh, we're going to start that this morning. And, you know, our team gets together and we think through our message series and we kind of plot like what passages we're going to do on a weekly basis. And this, uh, Didi put some titles, Didi, our senior minister, put some titles uh, to these messages. And this particular one he called Be a Glowworm. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so we, we, started, we started talking about this and uh, this, this title, Be a Glowworm, comes from a quote by Winston Churchill. Churchill once said, we are all worms, but I do believe that I am a glowworm. Now, th- this is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting quote. I, I, I dug into it a little bit and, you know, Deanie and I were talking about it because I, I still thought it was kind of a weird, weird quote, but the more we talked about it and then I dug into it, I kind of see what's going on. So basically, Churchill, um, he did not say this at the end of a long political career. He didn't say this after, uh, you know, World War II or anything like this. He said this at the entry point into his career in politics in the uh, early 1900s. He had actually been a young uh, soldier in a war, and he came back, he entered politics, and and he said this sometime in his mid to late 20s. And I think that's a fascinating thing because what it taps into is not just someone reflecting back and acknowledging that they feel that they did something unique, they did something special with their lives, but it's actually, actually a declaration on Churchill's part to say, I'm going to be something valuable. I'm going to contribute something that the world's going to remember. In a, in a world uh, where, uh, where there are a massive amount of people, I'm going to stand out. All people are worms, but I do believe I'm a glowworm. That's what uh, Churchill is getting at here. And I think the, the core idea here is that at our core level, most of us, and I think probably all of us, want to feel like we're valuable, like we've got some value to give, that we mean something to someone, and that what we do has meaning. And I grew up with that thought uh, about myself to an extent, or at least I had this, this idea of, of specialness instilled in me growing up. And I want to tell you why. It has to do with the circumstances surrounding my birth. So uh, we're going to have some pictures here on the screen behind me. So now my mom was in the last service and she corrected me on something because I, I don't know if this makes sense, but I don't have any memory of any of this. So, <laughs> but, um, so the picture uh, to uh, your left uh, in the top left corner here is me on the day I was born. Now I was born on January 6th and uh, I was not supposed to be born until the end of February, early March. I was born on January 6th, 1984. I was almost two months, or roughly two months, premature. 
The picture in the middle is my mom and dad with me at about four weeks old. And then the picture on the bottom right corner here is me uh, at eight and a half months, and it was the first day that I was at home from the hospital. So basically, I was born premature at a time where being premature uh, wasn't uh, wasn't handled all that well on a medical, from a medical standpoint. In fact, had I been born a year before, there's a high likelihood I would have died. I had underdeveloped lungs and other complicating factors. And while still today a child that's born prematurely uh, goes through uh, rigor that, uh, you know, a, a baby that can go full term uh, doesn't have to go through, uh, it was even worse so, you know, 36 years ago. And so, my, my mom and dad, I grew up hearing the story of the fight that they had to have um, with the medical community, with insurance people, uh, to, to keep me going. Uh, whether it was uh, getting the tests that I needed done, surgeries I needed done. I actually have, so this is funny, I had to have surgery on my little lungs, and they cut into my back, and they told my parents the scar would go away. It didn't. It just grew with me. So I still have it to this day on, on my back. It's kind of fun. Um, I tell people I was in a knife fight, though. So, um, but anyway, so be- because of this, you know, my, my, my parents had people praying with them. My mom, specifically, I just grew up hearing from her um, how, uh, how she feels that I, I was saved for a reason special because I survived at a time when a lot of children in my state did not. And I, I was even, I was telling last service, even about a year ago, I was having a really bad anxiety day. I've shared before I deal with anxiety stuff, and I was at lunch just one-on-one with my mom, and I was just saying some stuff, letting some stuff out, and my mom even stopped me and said, you know, I believe since you survived um, the stuff surrounding your birth, and I still do today, that God has a purpose for you and he isn't finished with you. So I grew up with this idea, and I think that idea, that narrative that I heard growing up really, really pushed me and was part of the driving force behind why I like, am a perpetual student and a glutton for punishment and still finishing a PhD. Because I have this sense about me that I need, I need to bring value and I need to be valuable. I need to live up to this narrative that I heard growing up. And I think a lot of us at some level, if, I mean, any of us that have parents that, that hopefully love us probably viewed us. It's not just a millennial thing, by the way, the whole like, I'm a special snowflake, even though that was a thing to say that, like, remember, Churchill thought he was a glow worm, so, I mean, come on. So, like, the, the thing is, I think on some level, we all want to feel that sense of, of being valuable to those around us. On the flip side of that, though, we also know that nobody wants to feel as if they're valueless that they are less than other people, that they have no value to give. And this really comes alive in some of the stories of Scripture. For instance, if you're reading into Genesis chapter 37, there's this story of a guy named Joseph that has 11 other brothers and a father that just adores him. He even uh, receives a special coat from his dad, and his brothers just hate how much he is the favorite son. 
And so this, this hatred of Joseph because of him being favored uh, skyrockets when Joseph starts to have these visions and these dreams. At one point, Joseph uh, tells his brothers, hey, hey guys, I had a really great dream last night. Okay, we were out binding sheaves together and all of a sudden the, sh- the sheave I was binding uh, stood, stood straight up and then all of yours bowed down to it. Isn't that a great dream? And then, and then the next day they come back, they're already angry with him, and he, and he goes, oh, oh, guys, 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 I've, I've had another one. Uh, and this one, uh, the, the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed down to me. Isn't that a great dream? The brothers didn't think it so. They didn't like the idea of having to bow down to little brother. They didn't like being made to feel less than. Now, they took it to the extreme, and they decided together they were going to plot and kill their brother. Then a couple of them uh, wised up, no pun on our sermon series here, and decided, you know, maybe murdering our brother is not the best way to handle this. So here's what we'll do. We'll take his coat off him, and we'll throw him in a pit and just leave him there. And they're like, well, then he'll die. We don't want to do that. So a caravan from Egypt comes by. And they decide they're going to sell their brother into slavery. And from there, Joseph's story has the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. He receives at certain points prestige, and at other points he's forgotten. He receives power, and then he's imprisoned. But over time and over the course of his life, he ends up being in the number two position in Egypt. And when a famine comes, he ends up being the reason that his family survives it. And lo and behold, in his power position, his brothers who sold him into slavery end up coming and effectively bowing down to him, just like the vision he had. So we know that Joseph has this power position, and his brothers do not like it early on. They don't, they don't like that he's special, and they feel not. Fast forward to the New Testament. We get another example of this. Jesus, he calls his 12 disciples. He's got two of them named James and John. They're, they're, the, they're the brothers, and they're the sons of a man named Zebedee. They're fishermen. He owned his own fishing business. These guys follow Jesus, believing him to be the Messiah, One day, they're all hanging out together, and these two go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, when you come into your power, put one of us on your left and one of us on your right. Now, if you're thinking in terms of like majestic uh, kingship in, in the sort, to be put on the right and left, they wanted power positions. They wanted seats of importance. They had gone behind their fellow disciples' backs and asked Jesus to give them special treatment because they thought that they were special. Now, when the disciples found out about this, they didn't like it too much. Jesus tried to dissuade them by saying, do you have any idea what's going to come with the territory if you get put in those positions? And they act like they can deal with it. And finally, Jesus course corrects them and he says, you know, the Gentile world around you, Those that are in power in that world lord it over the people that are under their authority. But in my kingdom, it will not be so. Because in my kingdom, the first 
shall be last, and the greatest shall be the servant of all. And that brings us to our friend James, who we're going to be studying today. A different James from the Zebedee son. And I want to introduce to you James and a passage that references him without referencing his name. And it comes in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, and then verses 31 through 35. And it's this peculiar scene in which the crowds are drawing near to Jesus. They're, they're crowding around him. And Jesus' family, his mother and his siblings, find out about this. And so I'm going to read verse 21 and then jump ahead to 31 through 35 here. This is what it says. It says, when his family heard it, that the crowds were coming around, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he is gone out of his mind. Now I want to take a time out for a moment before we jump to the other verses. In this translation, it just generically says, people thought he was out of his mind. The assumption in the Greek text is that Jesus' own family thought he was out of his mind. So they're going to come collect him and get him out of Dodge. And so when we fast forward to verse 31, it says this, it says, then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if you know the Christmas story, you'll know that, uh, that Jesus uh, and his coming to the world was a, of a miraculous nature. Um, Mary uh, was a virgin, but the spirit uh, of the Lord came upon her and she conceived and she ended up bearing a son named Jesus. She was betrothed to a guy named Joseph at the time who decided to stick the uh, marriage out despite the weirdness about finding out that your soon-to-be spouse is, is pregnant and you haven't done that yet. And so, you know, we, we oftentimes, we know that story, we celebrate it at Christmas time, and we, we kind of shut off from there. But what happens is that Mary and Joseph do, in fact, marry, and they have other children together. And so, effectively, um, one of Jesus' brothers, we find out, is, is, goes by the name of James. James would have been included in this group of people in his family that have rejected him and thought he was out of his mind. And the reason they've come to collect him is twofold. Number one, they think that what he's saying and doing is off the mark. This, this, is, not, this is not exactly, they're not exactly believing in him. Even though Mary treasured, uh, you know, treasured Jesus we're not so sure about the siblings having the same sense. Someone commented to me in between services, do you ever think like his siblings were ever told, why can't you be more like your brother? I, I don't know if that ever happened, but we know Mary thought, thought highly of her son, but, but the, the siblings thought he was losing it. But that brings the second thing is despite what Mary may have thought being different than what the siblings did, all of them heard what Jesus was saying and doing and were worried about him. 
They were worried about the kind of trouble that he would bring upon himself, upon their family, upon their people, and they didn't want him to bring that trouble on them uh, any more than maybe he already had, and so they're going to snatch him away from this situation. Now, uh, to fast forward through all the Gospels, uh, Jesus teaches, and he does miracles, and he has disciples, and then he hands himself over uh, to be crucified, and he's crucified and laid in a tomb, dead, and on the third day, he's raised. And then as a last act before uh, ascending into heaven, he commissions his followers to go and make followers of him. And then comes a time that we call Pentecost after his ascension where the Holy Spirit comes in and indwells within the church. Sometime in the mix of all of this, we find out that James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes a follower of Jesus. And not just a follower. We find out that James, after Peter is first leader of the church at Jerusalem, Peter starts to go off and do missionary work, and it is James that takes over as the leader of the earliest church in Jerusalem. We know this from Acts 12 and Acts 15. In fact, it's James that gives the speech and puts his name uh, to the letter that will be sent out uh, to tell the church how to include the Gentiles into the fold. Because at the time, uh, the church started out as a Jewish-only thing, and it expanded beyond the confines of Judaism. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the one leading that charge at the time. Paul, the apostle who wrote a lot of our New Testament, at one point comments and calls both Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus, a pillar in the church. This James has gone from antagonistic toward his own brother to being a follower of Jesus and a leader within the church. Oh, and he's still a sibling. So when we think about um, the things that make us special, that make us unique, that, that add value to our lives, that are things that we could walk into the room and shake hands and say, hello, I'm so-and-so, this is what I'm about, and this is what I do in life. James had a lot that he could say. I'm the brother of our Lord Jesus. I'm the leader, chest puffed up, of the church at Jerusalem. So what do we find when we turn to James 1.1, the opening statement of his letter? He says, James, a servant, and by the way, that word servant actually means slave. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now that is our verse for the day. And it's one of those verses that if you ever pick up your Bible and you start reading the letters in the New Testament, you probably kind of like skim it and then move on to the meaty stuff, right? I want us to stop, slow down, and take a moment to consider that one verse. Because it's not only packed full of meaning, meaning it's going to open the doorway for us to grasp the intensity of what James is going to say throughout this entire series. Because here's the thing, for James to call himself both a slave and acknowledge the lordship of Jesus is something that shouldn't just fall off of our ears unheard 
and we shouldn't be unmoved by it. But I think one of the reasons that we are is because, number one, the word Lord is something we're so accustomed to hearing in church, we just don't stop to think about what it means. And when we hear about the concept of servanthood or being a slave in the Bible, we have a tendency to, to wash it up a little bit. We want to we make it a little bit more palatable to us so that it doesn't offend us and so that we don't offend other people. But here's the thing. I've often heard it said, well, slavery in the ancient world wasn't quite as bad as the slavery that we have in mind when we're thinking about the atrocity that is slavery in American history and the world over in the 17, 1800s. They may say, oh, well, you know, uh, if, if, someone, if someone wanted to... Uh, make a living, they could sell themselves into slavery, so they have, they have autonomy over their life. Here's the meaning of the Greek word for slave. It means that someone is in, under the authority of somebody else, period, full stop. There is no autonomy. There is no freedom involved. Even if the person elected to do it, they elected to do it because the system didn't allow for them to actually make a living and even have food on their table if they didn't. Not exactly a real choice if you ask me. And the reason that we have to understand just how rough and how bad slavery was even during the Roman period that Jesus and his followers were alive and, and, and going about their business in is because in order to understand how negative it is, it actually brings the oomph of this passage to life. Because no one in that world with their right mind would want to refer to themselves as a slave. Especially if you had all sorts of other accolades and accomplishments that you could refer to yourself as. Just like all of us. If you ever have been in an interview and you have the 30-second elevator pitch you have to do, what do you have to do? You gotta sell yourself, you gotta tell them, this is what I'm all about, this is what my accomplishments are, this is what my, I don't know if you talk about your hobbies in an interview, we could, I guess. If you're meeting someone new at a party, you do the same thing. Even if you haven't caught up with a friend for a while, what do we do? We tell them about what cool trip we went on, what new trinket we've bought what new thing we're doing. All the accomplishments, all the things that we think make ourselves sound more valuable, more meaningful, we bring to the room. No one in here would want to refer to themselves as being under the authority of someone else, especially in America, right? Because freedom is the thing, right? It's all about my freedom and my autonomy, right? That's our cultural value except that the followers of Jesus were taught a different cultural value. Then, on the other hand, we've got this word Lord, and, and we also, again, in our English language and in the usage of these words, we don't see the connection. So the word doulos, which means slave in Greek, means to be under the authority of someone else. The word kurios, which means Lord in Greek, guess what it means? It means someone that's in authority over somebody else. By the way, if James were anything like the brothers of Joseph, do you think he'd be calling Jesus Lord when it's his brother? 
I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to go tell everyone that I'm under the authority of my brother. I mean, some of you know. Anyway, I'm just… <laughs> like, we just don't do that. But here's James having all the accomplishments that he could claim for himself, having all the power to convey. This is the way he walks into the room as a slave of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why this morning uh, I want you to remember a, a question. And it just goes like this. When I show up to the party or, or any other environment with people, when I show up to the party, what will they see and what will they hear? And I say it that way because on one hand, it'd be easy to, to use the I'm a slave of Jesus and be all pious, but then when people actually see the way that you live, it doesn't line up. And then on the flip side, we could go about living the right way, but have no connection to Jesus at all. And so when I walk into the room, when I walk into the party, when I go to shake your hand, what will you see and what will you hear? When you walk into the room, what will they see and what will they hear? And I want to stop here for a moment because it's not like the things that we accomplish, the things that we find valuable, and the things that give us pride and meaning are inherently bad. It's just that in God's economy, they are lesser than this one thing that James enters the room with. And why is that so important to us now? Well, I don't know if you guys know, but we're in a pandemic, and apparently 2020 is the worst year in history. And uh, there's an election coming up in November, and apparently everyone wants to shout their opinion online because everyone's opinion is always equally important. Um, and uh, we just want to shout at each other, and we want to take sides. And we want to show everyone why we're better than everybody else, and why our candidate's better than yours, and why our candidate's better than you. And the sad reality is that that power dynamic, as Jesus pointed out to his disciples, was the way of the world back then, and it's still the way of the world today. But what makes me really sad is too often the world has more influence on the church than the church has on the world. See, we can blow past James 1.1 to get to the good stuff, but I think it's really important for us to slow down and recognize that what has happened in this passage is God and his inspiration has reversed something that would have been a negative and made it the core positive that we should all lead into as what makes us us and what we should aspire to be. And if we actually do that as followers of Jesus, we will not only look different from the world, but we will be the light that this world so desperately needs. And here's the thing, every four years, everyone's going to say, this is the most important election of our lifetime. No, it's not. It's just another one. 
But you know, the sad thing though is, are we going to be eaten up with these power structures in life and just join in and act the same way? Or are we gonna go against the curve? Are we gonna walk into the room and, and, and hold up a higher value? Are we gonna walk into a room and live out a higher value? Because here's the thing. Whatever change any of us thinks some new world leader is going to bring to the table, whatever change we think that we can uh, make by just uh, shouting out, I'm right, and closing off our ears to everybody else, whatever change we think we can make by our own might, our own authority, our own freedom, our own power, we won't be changing anything. The only real change agent in this world is God. And we can choose, like James, to be his servant and to call him our Lord. Or we can just lean into all the systems that are already broken. And here's the best part. Do you want to know why this reversal is really, really important? Because the Lord Jesus unlike every other person claiming power and authority in this world, is perfect, sinless, spotless. Will never lead you astray. Will always have your best interests at heart. Oh, and by the way, the thing he said to his disciples, that I will, uh, that, that the greatest will become least, he did it first. He was God in the flesh, and yet he laid down his life for others. And that kind of person with that kind of power is someone worth dropping our power and our autonomy and, dare I say it, our freedom for. And so, church, as we go about this series, but even more so as we go about our lives in this world and we get caught up and the craziness and chaos. I would challenge you to just come back to this one small verse that we always skip over and ask yourself, if I were to walk into a room, if I were to shake someone's hand, if I were to introduce myself to someone, would I be able to do it in the way that James does? Or would I fall back on the typical ways of the world that we normally are accustomed to doing? Because one of those, one of those has the power of God behind it. And the other will just make us just like everyone else. So I want to celebrate with you what Jesus did at the cross. Like I said, he... He said the greatest shall be the least, and he was the lead example of that. In the Gospel of John, he actually said, greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down their life for their friends. When we take communion and we take the bread, and we peel off the top to get the bread out, just like they did in the first century, Jesus 
Jesus laid down his life. He gave his body, and his blood was poured out for our sake. This is what it looked like for Jesus for the greatest to become the least. It not only brought about our salvation, it gave us the chief example of how to live in the here and now. So to celebrate and remember that, take and eat. This is his body, which is given to us. And take and drink. This is his blood, which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for being good to us. I thank you that we can pause to look at what could seem an insignificant verse in your scriptures and instead contemplate just how bold and just how reversing what James says about himself is and how the way that he holds himself in relation to you and humility is not only a good posture for us today, but it's a life-altering one and a world-changing one. And so, God, um, because we want to mean something in this world, we want to mean something to someone, and I, I should hope that as a church we want to mean something to you, God, I pray that uh, that reversal that James brings about, I pray that you would make that the core thing that we aspire to be, to be your servant and to call you Lord in both word and deed, and that those that see us see us as different than the world around us, that they see us as a light in darkness, and that they see us as a people who become last and who become the least of these. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here this Sunday. Hope to see you next week. Have a good one. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.